What is up, everyone? Your boy Ryan Ray here inside the war room. As always, today's guest, someone I'm excited to talk to, or was excited to talk to when you recorded this, John Fitch. Now, if you don't know who this is, let me just kind of tell you a quick story. I've been watching, and we talk about this some in the podcast, I've been watching MMA since 2005, I think, something like that, 2006, which means I've watched not all of John Fitch's career, but a lot of it. Uh, I think he was actually um, you know, fighting before I was around, which doesn't say much, but and I've read his book recently, which is The Weight Cut Bible. We'll link to that in the show notes. But before we do all that, let's thank our sponsor, which is, again, Audible. I've been using it for years. I keep telling y'all, for years and years and years. Um, I love Audible. If you're not using it, I'm going to hook you up with a free trial. Okay? RyanRaySenior.com slash Audible. RyanRaySenior.com slash Audible. Free trial on your boy. Okay, it's actually the people of Audible, but whatever. Free trial you're getting by using my link. Help the show out. And you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And if you want a recommendation, if you say, hey, Ryan, I want a recommendation. I go through, oh, gosh, you know, 50 to 60 books on Audible alone a year. Shoot me a message, and I'll hook you up with some recommendations for Audible. Okay, John Fitch, back to him. I remember watching him fight for the championship against George at St. Pierre and, and really thought going into the fight that he had a good chance of beating George St. Pierre. Obviously, it didn't go his way that night. Um but he's had a very successful career, was a champion at uh, PFL, and great interview. Really enjoyed this discussion. Let me tell you, early on, the first, we'll say two, three minutes maybe, we had a little bit of technical difficulty with his microphone. We get that fixed. So if you kind of hear it buzzing or making that noise early on, just know that's going to go away relatively quickly, and then things get nice and smooth. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed it. So if you do, five-star review. Would really, really, really appreciate it. And go follow John Fitch on Twitter at johnfitch.net. We'll link to all of that in the show notes, along with our sponsor, Audible. And with that, here is the one, the only, John Fitch. Well, this is an absolute honor. I've been watching this man fight for, it feels like, I think if I can look, maybe as long as I've been watching UFC, which was um, when... It was Arlowski and Tim Sylvia, too. So I don't know if you were back in the UFC back that far or not or close, but uh, my guest today is John Fitch, as you already heard. John, it's great to have you on. Thanks. It's good to be here. And I think I I was close to that time. I don't think I was quite in the UFC yet for their second fight. I might have been, though. It was right around the time. Because I, I can have flashbacks to where I watched that fight, and I remember the house I was living in. Yeah. And I had, I think, one fight for the UFC when I was still in that house is up in Cupertino, California. Yeah, it had been close because according to um, Tapology, your first fight was uh, October of 2005 against Brock yeah. Larson. So it had been close. Maybe the the spring of that year is when Tito, uh, it was Tito and uh, Forrest and then uh, Arlowski. And so that was my first uh, pay-per-view to ever watch. And so um, anyway, so you've been, you've been around, you recently retired, but around the sport as long as I've been a fan. So you've been around the, you've been actually in the sport longer than I've been a fan. And one of the things that interests me about athletes, especially have a long career is their work ethic. And so I always talk about, especially the high end athlete, like a LeBron James who made $90 million at 18, 19 years old, I'd have retired. <laughs> like I would have dribbled the basketball for a few years and retired. Mm. Um, but basketball is one thing. MMA, um, being around the sport a little bit as I have, is completely different, especially working your way up through the ranks, the ups and the downs. It is so lonely. So um, I'm always intrigued by 
what drives a fighter, how do they keep going, and then what makes them finally say it's time to hang it up. So let's start there. What was your motivation to get into fighting? And then through the ups and downs of your career, how did you keep persevering? The biggest factor in deciding to fight was I didn't want a real job. <laughs> uh, I did not want to have a boss and you know, I uh, I saw the opportunity of fighting there, and when I started, it wasn't it wasn't super big. So, uh, I had gone to Purdue University. I graduated with a degree uh, uh, in education. I was going to be a high school PE or or history teacher, more than likely. <clears throat> and going through my student teaching stuff, I realized that I I didn't want to do that because uh, it was. It was no different than than a regular job to me, you know, where you showed up and people told you what to do and you really didn't have much say in what your day to day life looked like or what you were doing in the classroom. Because, uh, you know, the teachers and stuff that I observed, they, they, they seemed burnout, they didn't seem like they were uh, really passionate about their job anymore and you could see like they didn't have a say in how things were done They didn't have much say in the curriculum. You know, I started thinking that, that that didn't seem like a very fun thing to do. And I started looking at how my life was going to look if I went that direction. And then, you know, this fighting thing was over here. And then I learned about jujitsu a little bit. And I started thinking, you know, like, there's coaches out there who, that's all they do is coach. They don't have to teach high school. And I started thinking about, you know, if I get good at this stuff, like, I can make a living teaching people. And... That was probably more in my head than, you know, we're going to make millions of dollars fighting. But, you know, at the time, who knew, you know, they're doing six shows a year. Yeah, real quick, let's just set the table here. You're talking about, this is, well, you said 2005. So Ultimate Fighter 1 had just wrapped. Dana White talks about the pivotal moment. People like myself were just coming to the sport. I'd heard of it before, but everybody watched mm -hmm. it. And at the time, if you go back looking now, you know, the UFC was, you know, burning through cash, losing all kinds of money. So it wasn't like looking at, you know, a John Jones or Kamara Usman or, or whoever going, oh, my gosh, I'm going to make, you know, a, a boatload of money. Yeah. Like, I can make a living here. I can probably do really well. But it, the, the economies of scale were fundamentally different back then. Well, I mean, just the, you, you had you had UFC was pretty doing six shows a year. Right. You know, and so you had well, maybe 12 to 15 fights on a show. And, you know, that's only so like you were lucky to fight on two cards a year. That was that's, you know, pretty rare that you would fight twice a year. Um, and, you know, the thing, though, that back then you, you had opportunities to fight at a lot of different a lot of different shows because you didn't have like long term, never ending contracts like you do now. Um, but yeah, so I always knew that the sport was going to blow up, but I didn't know how long it would take. And that was always kind of like a side thing. Um, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll do what I think it's going to do. But even if it doesn't, like I had a fallback, I was like, I can, I can teach, I can run a gym. I can, you know, get my black belt in jujitsu and I'll be all right. I can, I can actually write my own curriculum. Then I can actually do what I want to do and teach the way I want to teach. And set my own hours. So I thought that was more appealing. And uh, when I moved to California, I moved to California in 2003. Um, you know, I just started getting really <clears throat> obsessed with it. 
you know, I moved because I wanted to relocate somewhere where I had a lot of people to learn from, which, which California had. Indiana really didn't have uh, anybody. There was nobody to train with really in Indiana at the time. Excuse yeah, me. How, how far away would you have been from the Milicic camp? Were they, were, they, were they in Illinois? Where were they at back then? They were in Iowa. Iowa. That's right. Iowa. Mm-hmm. Iowa. Pretty good little uh, And that was something that I had looked into. Uh, but um, Monty Cox, at the time, he had, he had enough welterweights already. He had guys my size. So he wasn't really interested in having. It was like me and this guy, Brian Eversall, <coughs> uh, kind of I met in my first fight. And then we started going to a bunch of different fights together. And. He knew known Monty and fought for Monty. I fought for Monty in an amateur show. It was like my second, third fight. Um, but yeah, Monty just says like, yeah, man, we got enough welterweights already. You know, good luck, but you should probably go look somewhere, look somewhere else. And um, so yeah, I, I ended up finding AKA and uh, Zika Entertainment and decided to go to California. I'd always wanted to go to California too, I think. That helped. <laughs> but we spent a, we spent a week out here, and then you saw all the coaches, and and I was like, man, like there's there's a lot of martial arts all over the bay. I was like, even if it doesn't work out here, there's other places to go. And uh, when I got out here, I just you know was able to immerse myself 100 into training, and just became obsessive with it. Right. And so one of the things that um, this is more for the the casual fan who might not be familiar with kind of the mixed martial arts is. At the time when you came in, you had Matt Hughes was probably the champion at 170, Rich Franklin at 185, Chuck Liddell mm-hmm. at 205. They didn't have a 155 division. At 145, they had done away with that. Um, and mm-hmm. what you saw at that time period was quite interesting. And I used to kind of joke when I, when I got into it. I always used to joke, the guy you talk about 12 to 15 fights. I used to say, well, the guys at the bottom of the card – I'm not saying I could beat them, but it looks like I could beat them. Like, because they would get in there kind of the boxing was really bad stuff. And, and again, I'm not saying I could, but it just visually, they, the bottom of the car did not look like kind of elite athletes. The top guys were, were really good. And what you saw from that time period to today, if you go watch a UFC 205 to, um, I mean, a UFC, um, whatever it was back then, 37, 40, whatever it was, the 205, the bottom of the card, like those dudes <laughs> would beat most of the guys back then. And so your career is interesting because some of those guys at the top, like a Rich Franklin, um, was not able to keep a high-level career for very long as this transition happened. So all these guys came into the sport, um, and overnight you started to see changes. And you know, you used to be like a a, a dominant in one discipline, um, but a lot of fighters kind of changed. The other thing that's interesting is at the time you talk about going to Purdue, Dana White was out produce, uh, promoting all of these guys are college graduates. They all had this background, and so it kind of helped open it up to the mainstream, which is, hey, these are just normal guys getting in here trying to fight. Of course, there's probably a little bit more to it than that, but it was a really weird and interesting time, and someone like yourself who had a successful career for so long, how were you able to ride that wave to where the guys that you were fighting in 2004, 5, and 6 are fundamentally different than Paul Daly or someone like that at the end of your career? I mean, there were still, you know, a lot of killers out there. <clears throat> because you may have gotten some guys who got through on the undercards who weren't great, um, but there were still tons of tons of killers. I fought an eight-man tournament in Mexico, and uh, I fought three guys that night who all easily could have competed uh, in the UFC today, and uh, but they would never made it to the UFC. Unpack what you're saying there, because for the casual, again, they might not realize what you just said. <laughs> yeah, so I fought an eight-man tournament, so we fought three times in one night. Three times in one night. <laughs> yeah, and the three guys that I fought, the, they easily could have 
competed uh, at a UFC, uh, you know, won multiple fights for the UFC. And, you know, they never fought for the UFC at all. So, like, you still had you had some really great fighters out there who who you might not have heard of just because again like there was only so many shows a year and uh you know so many spots on each card for them to for them to fill so there was it was very competitive and when we first started like that was the thing you had to do to get your name on the map was you had to find you know it was like a uh ronin samurais whatever we had to go out and we had to find the guy who fought in the ufc before you had to find a a UFC veteran. And then if you could get a fight with a UFC veteran, then uh, that they gave you a lot more, more uh, clout. Yeah, I'm sure. And just to be clear, I'm not disparaging the guy. I'm not saying I could have beat the guys. I'm just saying this fundamentally, when you turn on a, if you turn on the first fight of a card of USC, whatever the, the one they had Saturday night, and you watch the, the first fight, those, I don't know if it was dudes or gals that were fighting, but they're like, I was like, oh, wow, those guys would, would murder me. It's just, it's just, it's funny how it's evolved. And to your point, well, though, I mean, I, I have a little bit of a disagreement, I guess, because um, a lot of the guys back then, I think were more technically better at fighting. I think there's a lot of guys now who are more athletic and more steroided up. <laughs> they look the part more now but you had guys like like uh jeremy horn you know uh you you watch him and you looked at him and he he refed a couple of my amateur fights um that i fought for for mighty comics in the extreme challenge and when i showed the the vhs tape <laughs> to my friends of the fights um they were laughing at at jeremy horn he's like would they get a homeless guy to like stand out here because he doesn't look impressive but sure. jeremy horn had like 150 100, professional yes, fights yes, yes and um was a very very skilled fighter but he did not look like a fighter at all yes i'm strictly speaking from the optic standpoint not from yeah. reality i'm not saying i yeah. wouldn't be any of those dudes in a dark alley <laughs> just so we're clear i'm just saying the optics have changed they are a lot more athletic the other thing that you see now is um, to your point, you went to college. A lot of guys went that route. They were college. They went to wrestling, and they kind of stumbled into this deal. Like you hear about Chell Sonnen kind of talking about it, you know, or or whatever, mm -hmm. like or Randy Couture. It's like, okay, um, where now you have guys who have watched you guys, and their whole career trajectory is to come up and to try to be a, an MMA fighter. Yeah, so it just, yeah we have guys. Yeah, there's guys now that are, you know, have been training since they were children. Uh, uh, AJ uh, McKee. Is a prime example his, his you know his father started fighting when he was in junior college wrestling probably and then uh he's been doing it his entire life yeah and so you mentioned those tournaments um and i, I love hearing those those stories because um you know mma back in the early 2000s was it was different there was the tournaments were going on i've heard forrest griffin i think talk about them mm -hmm. uh babalu a lot of those guys they were kind of fighting these two three men well two three yeah, four forrest won like a really big tournament which i mean like if you look that tournament up it was before the ultimate fighter mm -hmm. i think it was one of the things that got him on that show um but like if you look at all those guys who are in that who are in that tournament they're all killers Oh yeah, yeah. I, I know it was him, and I think Babalu was in there. I can't remember who else was in there. Um, but what's it like? Okay, so getting in a fist fight um, is is rough enough, right? So getting in a mixed martial arts fight is a different level. What's it like doing three full combat fist fights in a night? It's can be uh, man. So you don't want a lot of time in between the fights. You think you would to recover, but 
you just get more swollen and more sore. So it's kind of good to like to just go quick and knock them out. <laughs> but I've um, I've fought I think three times. Where I've fought more than one time in a night. And, and do you do you like that? Like, do you wish that anybody would have kind of tournament style? Looking at it now, I would rather do it <laughs> because I, if I can make you can fight three times in one night and make you know three times the money in one night, because then it's one training camp. That's appealing. Mm-hmm. You know, if I could, if I can make my normal show win bonuses on the tournament each fight, that would that would make it um, that would make it nice because then I would you know you do two three months of training and then you fight you know that night and then you're done. Yeah, and I don't know at the the UFC contracts or Bellator contracts you had there towards the end, but I think a lot of those contracts are like three fight deals, so you could go through your whole contract <laughs> maybe in a night or two nights. Well, uh, yeah, they used to be three fight deals. Now it's like everybody's five to like nine fight deals it's yeah. it's part of the manipulation of the the promoters okay so you you brought that up and we talked about this offline so i do want to talk about this because you were involved with um a lawsuit i believe it was in 2018 something like that 2015 no we filed in like 2014 i think yeah. but it's a class action lawsuit uh against ufc it's antitrust lawsuit we think they're they're uh, infringing on uh antitrust laws uh, they have monopoly power and monopoly power, and uh, yeah, it's just it's a not a good situation for fighters. We end up being exploited. You know, we we built the company up, but we have no investment in the company. You know, okay, we get so, kicked out, and they keep all the profits. So the listeners will know this, but but just for your perspective, I am a free market capitalist, so I am hoping that everyone gets the opportunity to make as much money as humanly possible. So, with that being said. Um, I want to hit you because you're the first fighter at this level. I've been able to talk to these issues and I want to get your perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we can all agree that the UFC could pay the fighters more on some level. I don't think that's every boss has got, unless the company's losing money. It's not so much about paying more. It's about um, removing restraints that they have placed on the market that do not need to be there for competition to happen. And you're talking probably about sponsorships on the shorts no, well, that's part of that's part of the resulting things that happens. But but owning the biggest problem is the promoter owning the title and exclusive contracts. That's the biggest problem. Title to what specifically? The title, the the UFC title. They own the title oh, and exclude. Yeah, the belt and exclusive contracts. So you have um, a situation where if it was the NFL, you know, they have a sanctioning body. The NFL controls the NFL title, mm-hmm. and they you know and uh if that was owned by the dallas cowboys and the dallas cowboys were able to pick the lineups every year and who plays who and at the last minute could change who's playing in the the super bowl because hey we own the trophy it's ours we get to decide who plays for it that's that's a restraint on the open market and now other teams and team owners don't have a real chance at winning so if i'm under just for take of argument here from understanding you're saying i think that kamara usman right now should be able to go take the title and fight wherever he wants um he should be able to since he won the title he should be allowed to become a uh independent contractor not independent. i'm sorry he's an independent contractor. he should be able to uh be his own promoter like mayweather does that's part of the ali act in boxing mm-hmm. because as the fighter who is a company each fighter is his own company the promoter is supposed to work for that fighter. He's a he's a, a event provider. He's like your cell phone company. He 
provides you this platform. Uh, you're the show. You're the business that people are paying to to um, to take part in, right? Right. Um, he and boxing, they're allowed to they, they win the title. They're at their most valuable at that moment because now they're the champ, right? So, because they're at their most valuable, they should be allowed to make the decision. You know, do I want to go stay with this promoter who treats me like shit? Can I go to another promoter or can I promote myself? Because the other part of what is a restriction on the market is like there's no um, cross promotion events like promoters don't work with each other in MMA. You don't have a Bellator a UFC crossover. Well, boxing promoters, they they have to work together all the time. OK, so make sure again, just for parsing this out. Uh, Usman should be able to, if I understand correctly, but, um, oh, uh, pick, um, John Jones is currently not a champion. So John Jones should not be able to, because he's not a champion. Is that, is that what you're saying? Just, I'm not just no, it's, it's, uh, it's something that's part of the Ali act. Once you, when you go, I fight Usman for the title and I win, boom, I'm a free agent. That's what I'm saying. So just the champions is what you're saying. Uh, yes. Once you win the belt, you become a champion and then you have that option because it, that it, it it opens the market up to make sure that you're not stuck with somebody who's exploiting you or treating you poorly or not paying you correctly. It forces the promoter to actually do his job and work hard for you. Okay. So, so we'll, so we'll reset here. So Usman is fighting Ryan Ray. Ryan Ray lasts about half a second. That's about how long it lasts. Ryan Ray is stuck with the UFC, but Usman retains the belt and he can then go shop around where he wants to do. That's more or less what you're getting at, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's an important distinction because a lot of times you hear about fighter pay um, and you know, issues. One of the things that it's hard is the, the lower down the card you go, the, the less that people are showing up for those people, the more they're showing up for the top of the card. It's hard to try to balance out what goes with what. Now, the other thing I find that I'm curious about is, and this is would be post your UFC time, if I got the timeline right, um, is they have the performance centers now. Uh, they bought uh, Invicta. They, they have a lot of things going on around the world that are, are probably a loss leader for them, right? They're, they're really not making money, um, but, they, but they are helping fighters out. So how, how does it balance out when you say, okay, hey, you know, these guys in Mexico or in Vegas could go to the performance center or China, um, and they're going to get this opportunity or Invicta for the women's sports, and, and these aren't necessarily money-making opportunities. The UFC, but it helps. Well, brand. they it it's uh, it's maybe not deliberately or in front money making, but it is because they end up what's doing is they they cut out competition exactly. because they lock up all of the talent. Mm -hmm. They try to streamline everybody through their you know they get their web on everybody. Mm -hmm. Then those people are less likely to go fight for other promoters. That's one of the other problems we have is they lock out the restraints placed in the market is locking out other people with money coming in and becoming promoters mm -hmm. because there's no more access to the top fighters. UFC has 90% of the top 10 guys in every weight class. Um, they have the most distinguished belt. So everybody's trying to uh, fight for their belt, which they own is not a sanctioning body doesn't control it. Mm -hmm. So if um, you and don't sign their crappy contracts, if you won't sign their crappy contract, you don't get a chance at the belt ever. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. When you turn on boxing, the and it's the you know the WBO or whatever, that's a sanctioning body that owns that belt. They have their own judges, mm -hmm. their own refs. They have all those people. They're showing up in charge of that. Um, it's not Bob Arum 
allegedly. <laughs> Maybe he might be the bad paint. There, there is there is corruption in boxing, but there are legal means to deal with the corruption. It's not always dealt with, but there are at least ways to deal with it. MMA, the corruption's built into the the mm -hmm. framework. Mm -hmm. It's built right in. Uh, so, like a little history lesson, right? Back in the late 1800s, promoters controlled uh, exclusive contracts and the title. Well, that became a problem because everybody could, everybody wanted to fight for one promoter because he had the most money, he had the highest ranked belt, um, and it kept all other promoters out of the business. And the government was like, well, that's not fair. You know, we, we have to uh, uh, prevent monopolies like that and uh, the corruption that goes along with it. So they made it illegal for the promoters to control the, the, the title and exclusive contracts. So they, they uh, created the athletic commissions in every state. And then that ran like that for a little while. And then that got really corrupt because New York was the biggest state. It had the most money, the most people. And everybody had to work in New York for that reason. Like you couldn't be in Tennessee and be like, hey, we have the Tennessee Athletic Commission to title and you know we don't have the money to pay you. Like nobody wanted to be a promoter in there. No one wanted to fight there. Everything was in New York. So they realized that that was also uh, a monopoly of the title by the state. And at that time, New York created a sanctioning body license. And that was 1926, I believe. And that's where the creation of WBO, WBC, and all those boxing titles came from was almost 100 years ago. And um, that is one of the biggest reasons why boxing and boxers make more money is because that, that separation of title and exclusive contracts leaves the market well more open for uh, not only fighters to be more free and find appropriate um, promoters or promote themselves, uh, it, it creates uh, an opportunity for outside people with money to create a promotion also. Okay, so let me ask you this question. Um, back when you were getting to the UFC, um, I think you would agree that they were losing money, it seems, by all accounts. You know, they bought it from a, a group that was losing money. Well, there's a backstory. There's okay. a backstory to yeah. why the UFC was losing money. Okay. You know, they, they always start at that point. Oh, they saved the flailing UFC that, that was, you know, for $2 million. Well, why? Like, people love fighting. What were they doing that, that people weren't watching? Well, there were behind-the-scenes things going on to uh, – prevent them from making money right so um they got kicked off of television they couldn't fight in a lot of states it was illegal a lot of places john mccain was going after them for some reason um but yeah you had the fertitas one of them was on the nevada athletic commission okay uh his father um Fertitta, you know, they built casinos and they got a lot of connections in Vegas. Mm -hmm. He's really good friends with Harry Reid. Harry Reid was a senator from Los, was from, from Nevada. Uh, you know who Harry Reid's like best friend is and guy who he did the most work with in, in, in the Senate? John McCain. Well. So you have direct times to, to uh, ties to the powerful people who are, who are screwing up the UFC's ability to make money. Mm -hmm. um, the original UFC, the SCG UFC's ability to make money, and then the Fertitas. Mm -hmm. uh, in 99, I think it was, um, 
all the work had been done to legalize MMA. Remember, because it was it was it wasn't real. It wasn't a real sport, a sanctioned sport yet, because there was no athletic commissions. They they did all the work. SCG did all the work, paid all the money to get it get it to look like a sport and to be a sport and to be uh, legalized and uh, accepted by the athletic commission. Well, when it came to the vote, the commission voted no. And nobody could understand why we couldn't, we couldn't believe it. Like, we're like, this is such an opportunity. There's so much money to be made. Why would Nevada say no to this? And if they would have said yes, like UFC then could have just started doing shows every month. Like who wouldn't go to this, this, uh, you know, to go to the desert, watch people fight in a cage. I don't see why that wouldn't been, uh, wouldn't have been popular. So, so yeah, real quick, this, you're making a real good point here. They were fighting on like on the Indian reservations. They couldn't be on paper. Yep. Costa Rica or like yeah, some other places yeah, the where their was very, very narrow. And so yeah. and I'm talking about when I watch it, what happened was they were on the spike TV with the ultimate fighter had happened. And so it was kind of blowing up. You're talking yeah. about before that they couldn't get licensed by the state. Athletic couldn't get licensed. So there was like nowhere to host the show and like nowhere for people to see it. So like, how do you make money? And I was making the lines, there's, you know, no, I don't have any hard evidence, but there's a lot of familiar faces that show up in the same places. And, um, you know, when, when we go back, like they voted no. And sure enough, like Fertitta was on the athletic commission. He's the one who voted no. He's the one who helped get the commission to vote no on, on that uh, legalization deal. And then he quits quits the commission, grabs his brother, and they turn around and they buy the UFC for cheap, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And then all his buddies are still in the commission. They turn around. What do you know? Athletic commission accepted it. The same. They didn't make any changes. Now now the Fertitas own the UFC, though. Now the athletic commission was like, okay. Right, but okay. So I, so I, I, I think there's a lot of funny business and stinky fish in them acquiring the UFC in the first place. I don't think they're heroes that like saved anything. I think they stole it. I think they destroyed a good business purposefully and then bought it cheap. Right. Okay. And just for listeners, John McCarthy, former rep, I've heard a lot of people articulate this point. I wasn't there. I have no dog in the hunt. Um, What you're saying is not, is not some wild conspiracy theory. There's plenty of people in the MMA community who Mm -hmm. agree with what you're saying. I just, I don't. I'm. I'm, I'm agnostic because I don't. I've never. I've heard it. I've yeah. looked at it, but it seems to be a very much. Um, all the big names who have been in the sport pre Ryan Ray, which is a lot, they all kind of align with this story. Um, and, and so I don't. It seems that that's very plausible, which leads me to kind of the government intervention angle, which is that's why you don't want the government involved uh, in trying to mandate stuff because you can get a Bob to talk to a Tom to talk to Senator so and so and get on Bill O'Reilly and call it human cockfighting, right? And so. Mm. That's kind of the concern. Yeah. You say, well, we want the government to make sure this is fair. It's like, well, that that doesn't seem to work very well. Well, man, there's, this, there's a distinction between, for me, there's a distinction between like the government and laws, right? Because I don't need more government. I don't need a, a new uh, agency that takes tax money and runs. I don't, I don't need that. But if you put something in the, in the laws and saying, hey, you cannot do this and to me, it's kind of a pretty clear thing that like in sport, for something to be a sport, you cannot own the prize and exclusive contracts. It's a huge conflict of interest. Well, okay. Uh, this and and I, I'll, I'll, I'll charge you to name one sport that does it. The NFL. But so the NFL. Has no, the NFL has a sanctioned body. 
like the team owners are the team owners. That's the promoter, the Dallas Cowboys, the Raiders, the, the 49ers, like each one of those is its own separate promotion. They, they sign own- contracts and they own uh, the players contracts and they pay the players. They, they get the independent contractors to work for them, mm-hmm. but the title, the rankings, they're all independent. They're independent from the team owner. Team owner doesn't get a say in who's, who's, who's uh, ranked in the league. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I think so. Let's 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 unpack that a little bit. Make sure we're on the same page. So the 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 NFL owns the, the title of the, the Super Bowl champion, right? They mm-hmm. have the trophy. That's their trophy. Yep. And to what you're saying, I think is is that how that trophy is determined who wins is through a process that everyone is agreed upon. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. If you win the most games, yep. you then win the championship. In the See, UFC. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you go. You go to the. You go to the park to, to play a game and pick up basketball. You're gonna play for money. You find somebody else to hold the money, right? The yeah. guy, the third party holding the money for you two playing. That's that's the sanctioning body. Okay. And so what you're saying with the UFC is, um, you show up. John Fitch shows up and wins ten fights in a row, and he wants to fight for the championship. They're like, nah, nah, not today. It's no, because like, we don't like your contract. We don't like your attitude. We we. We already have somebody who looks like you. Right, right. And so you're 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 saying that the that the competition, by the way it's organized, mm-hmm. is not clear cut on how it is to be competitive and how it's, it's technically it's uh technically the UFC is not a competition. It's a it's a promotion, not a promotion, a, a production. It's entertainment. That's the word I want. It's production. It's more, yeah, it's it's pro wrestling. They run a pro wrestling format, but the fights are not uh pre predetermined. Right. And, and that's, so that's, you bring up an interesting point here. That's, that's the thing that makes it hard, right? Because, um, you know, you can have, we can talk about maybe a Demi and Maya who is like a master mm-hmm. of getting you down and choking you out or arm barring you or, or whatever. And then you might have someone on the other end of the spectrum, like a Francis Ngannou who's going to come in there and just knock your block off. And mm-hmm. it is a philosophical question, which is on one hand, you're pushing back and saying, okay, in the NFL, I know how to win the Super Bowl. Score more points every game. If I if I do that, I win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. It's pretty simple. In the UFC, I might be a Demi and Maya, and I never get my shot, or they don't put me up until they get the champion mm-hmm. and we're against. Um, whereas Francis Ngannou, they might catapult him to the top because he's more exciting. And so then you have the question, which is, how is it the UFC's job to try to determine what they think will bring in the most viewers? And that's I don't think that's an easy question. As a promoter, their job is to promote, is to make sure everybody knows about the fight and the top fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a sport, the sport needs to be left alone to be a sport. Mm-hmm. You have to make the decision. Do you want to watch pro wrestling or do you want to watch a sport? That's that's what has to happen. Um, like I'm a, I'm a purist in the sense that I don't, I, I wish we would have never gotten time limits you know, I think just go in and fight until somebody quits. I, I'm I'm all about I'm all about that and figuring out, you know, I as I like what's the best style, what's the best technique, what's the best way to put these things together. I'm all I was all for, you know, uh soccer kicks, knees to head on the ground, elbows, and and open up the time, like let them go 30 minutes, just see what happens, <laughs> you know. Um, but as a purist, there's some uh people who you know, I'm a, like the purist, like a lot of people don't want to sit through uh, that 30 minutes of the fight, though. So I understand, you know, breaking up the rounds it gives you a chance to kind of sprint at the beginning of every round, uh, which is a good thing. But 
I don't think that restricting the sport to and its ability to flow naturally is uh, is really helping things. I think it ends up diminishing the quality of the fighters and the, the, the skill level they have. Um, and it just for somebody who has dedicated so much of their life to competing, like to really lose that competition angle is, is it's bull crap, you know? Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a fascinating point there. Um, you know, early UFCs, you know, the rules were fundamentally different and you're, you're kind of the, the old dog, the old breed. Like I kind of like that style and it, it does produce a different result. Right. And I actually think today, I'm curious your thoughts on this. If you look around, we've got bare knuckle boxing, we've got PFL, we've got Bellator, um, we have the UFC, we have a lot more regional shows. I wonder, we got submission underground. I wonder if there would be, uh, and I don't know if you could get commissions to approve this, a way to go back to maybe the three fights in one night or the long kind of the old school rules, because there is so many more things. Whereas back in 2005, 2004, um, whatever was happening with the potatoes aside, there just wasn't enough exposure to have as many eyeballs drawn to it. Do you think maybe there is room for an organization to say, hey, listen, we're doing we're doing a tough man, not in the sense of, you know, amateur boxers, but like the tough man, like the old school MMA. You come in here, there's no rules. The first one to quit quits. And it would change the perception because, you know, 17 minutes into a fight, if someone's like, I'm done, I don't think any viewers can be like, oh, that guy's a wuss. They're like, dude, he fought for 17 straight minutes. What's wrong with this guy? Because if you've ever boxed in the backyard like I have, which is amateur mm -hmm. amateur levels, about two minutes in, most, you're most three head, fights you, know? you see on on YouTube or that pop up on the on the uh, on your timelines, they're 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 over in like 30 seconds or right. a minute. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yeah, when you usually get to high school, we get their box, you know, like a two or three minute round, we'd be able to like dead, like, oh my god. Gosh, what are we yeah. doing? Like old old pride. Pride used to be a ten minute first round. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. That and that was a that was a different style altogether. So, okay. So I think I I, I want to take what you said about the fighter stuff and, and chew on a little bit more because I think you've got some interesting things about the path to um, a championship. Is interesting. I'm not sure. I, well, I, and, and a big part of this is uh, a lot of people lose it is they look at the fighters as employees. And, and, not, and they're not. not they're 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 their own business that's right you know yeah, yeah I, I two businesses doing 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 work together you know the name image and likeness stuff that came out um back when you were in the ufc i, I never understood that was a really hard argument for me to buy with yeah well it was them uh they bullied us into giving over our our image and likeness for free because they needed it they needed it to be able to sell it all together in one package mm -hmm. and profit off of it because like there was no way they were going to be able to write individual deals with everybody who got their actual pay um, to to be able to get uh, percentage of of the of the video game like uh, like NFL players do when they're in the the football games. Uh, you know they they couldn't have made the money and they wouldn't have done what they were able to do with that. Um, they're also they were copying. WWE's uh, merchandising mm -hmm. uh, business model, and WWE can do the things it's doing because it's not a sport, and their wrestlers are um, pretty much employees. They own all of that stuff, even though they do count them as independent contractors and force them to to buy their own plane tickets and stuff like that. 
WWE, WWE, WWE treats their wrestlers pretty bad. Have you ever thought about doing that, the WWE? No, I just never. Like, when I was little, I, I loved, like, Junkyard Dog and, mm-hmm. and uh, Hulk Hogan and mm-hmm. all that stuff, Andre the Giant. But then I kind of figured out, it, I started wrestling in the fourth grade and figured out that it was fake. And I just, I was kind of pissed for a long time. And I, <laughs> that was me. This is all, this is all fake. I was like, fuck these guys, man. When I was a kid, you know, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, yep. you know, all those dudes, I was like, oh, this is great. My dad's like, that's fake. I'm like, no, they have Shawn Michaels with the x-ray, he broke his neck, you know, dad, you don't understand. And then when I figured out it was, it was fake, I was like, I'm an idiot. You know, that was the Steiner brothers wrestled at Michigan yeah. State or something, Michigan. But yeah, and then I went to my first day of wrestling. And I was like, yeah, this is nothing like the TV. But I, I thought that it was awesome because you pretty much got to fight people and push them around and pull their heads down. And uh, I was hooked right away. But yeah, I was pissed. So so wrestling, where I'm from originally, was not a big deal. Okay, so we had, I think in our parish, maybe one school that had a wrestling program. So mm-hmm. it was something in, that was not really talked about we didn't know any wrestlers growing up um and didn't really understand the mentality of wrestlers or how hard they had to work i i have a conspiracy theory that okay. uh wrestling has been muffled and like put away by the government because it wants weak people <laughs> and if everybody was if everybody was forced to wrestle and had to wrestle in junior high or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah you'd have a different culture well, I, it's interesting. So I played offensive line in high school and pushing on people that are bigger than you or even smaller than you and trying to turn them is not wrestling, obviously, but it's it's kind of the very- It's a form of grappling. Right? It's, it's not, the, the very basics of the building blocks, right? Footwork, pushing back and forth. Right. Yeah. And it's really weird just with that mentality. First off, you got to have a different mentality because you're trying to push this man and this man is trying to bulldoze you over. Um, and so you kind of have to get your different mentality so wrestling is kind of that on steroids, you know, it's like jacked up version of that. Cause this guy's not only trying to push you once he gets you down, you know, football, once he knocks you down, he goes, so he face, trying to push you, maybe snap your head down. Right. Like, uh, I suggest that to a lot of people is hand fighting, you know, the hand fighting, neck wrestling stuff. You just mm-hmm. try to, you know, grab wrist control, snap the head, see if mm-hmm. you can bear hug your buddy, just stuff like that is like really healthy. It's good for you to like, just get, get and mix it up a little bit. So when did you know you were good at wrestling? I didn't I didn't have like a winning season until I think like seventh grade, you know, but I think what it was, I think it was, I can't, it was probably sixth grade when, uh, so like I went to this junior high, um, started going in the fourth grade. Like, so like we would take a bus to go to the junior high. My mom picked me up from, you know, after the, after practice from the junior high, but like, we weren't supposed to be there, but the coach just let whoever come, come to practice, you know? So he had, he had second graders, third graders, fourth graders, they would all come to practice and he would bring all of us to the tournaments and he would, um, he have second and fourth graders like wrestling junior high tournaments. And he would just lie about the age, say, Oh, he's a seventh grader. And he would, he would just bring them in. And, you know, I'm like, fourth fifth grade wrestling uh eighth grade 13 year old eighth graders (laughs) but he he just do it he just throw you in there just give you experience i mean i didn't even it didn't even uh i didn't even realize that until i was a little bit older i was like man i was like tony was just putting us in with like killers when we were little kids and uh but like the experience helped and like we had really good 
high school wrestling team and um like being able to do that i think helped a lot with uh like just getting after it and not worrying about you know who somebody is because <laughs> like we were like there's like grown men it seemed like i was wrestling with uh but i i got i think sixth grade i think i placed like third or something like that maybe maybe fifth even but i got a ribbon and i remember that and i was like man like i'm actually getting good at this because <laughs> yeah. it wasn't it was something i was doing it was something that was fun and then i remember getting that first ribbon and being like man like i could i could uh i could really do this maybe so when you get into fighting and i'm curious the difference here between wrestling and fighting so in a wrestling match, how long does it take before you know, clear cut, this one's over, I've got it in the back, or maybe the other side, it's not going my way today. And the same thing for MMA, is it the same time period, is something different? Um, how, did, you know, how did you know? Uh, I mean, you do develop, I think that's one of the good things I've developed from wrestling, and I've heard other wrestlers talk about this with fighting, is you learn how to break people, and you can kind of like pressure and pressure and pressure them. You kind of feel, feel their will break, and they don't push back as hard at a certain point uh and it's not a it's not a time thing it's just you just feel it you just feel their will, will kind of like slip and i've fought plenty of guys who who broke and at the at the at the at that moment they just became defensive and like they were just trying to survive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and so one of the things i remember when yushin okami was making his run um through the ufc like everyone was going to the corner it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird dude like god he's so strong like two or three fights have happened and mm. franklin fought him he's like yeah he's not that strong how often did you get in the octagon and realize wait this dude's a lot stronger than i thought he was or oh my gosh he's really not that strong i've had i i've i had the he's really not that strong thing happen a few times but i fought the most clear one was when I fought Shoney Carter. I fought Shoney Carter in a shooto event. We we're in a ring. And I remember the first time we kind of clinched up. I was like, I was like, this, I was like, you know, the fight was going kind of too easy. And I was like, this can't be, uh, he's holding back. He's like, he's going to string, spring the trap. So like, I was like, not uh, aware of like how much I was mauling him. I thought he was, you know, deceiving me somehow. And then, uh, what was it, the second or third round, but like I took him down, he tapped, rolled over and threw up. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess he was <laughs> that week. Hey, so let's go back. I want to talk about your fight against uh, maybe the GOAT, GSP. I remember this time because you were going through, you're like on a 15, 16 fight win streak at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you were like, you talk about Shoney Carter, you'd beaten a lot of Diego Sanchez, a lot of who's who's for that time period and still some today. Um, and then you go fight GSP. And I remember thinking, John Fitch is going to come here, and he's just going to maul GSP. Um, obviously, it didn't go your way that night. What was that experience like fighting maybe – he's – okay, in my opinion, he's the GOAT. Uh, maybe Anderson. I think so. I think he is too. Okay. So, what was it like? Because, yeah, Anderson, Anderson was top dog at 185 when there was nobody at 185. Right. That's right. <clears throat> you know? um, so, and, uh, like fighting GSP, what did he maybe do that you didn't expect? Um, he just had really great timing. He was, he's athletic and had good timing. And, um, you know, he put simple things together over and over again. You know, one of the I, think, I think I could have beat him if we got a chance to fight a second time. Okay, so one of the questions I have about fighting GSP was it seemed like there was a period in GSP's um, reign where he would almost do what – 
the opponent was supposed to do to the opponent. Like he's almost better at their stuff. Was well, did you find that to be the case when you find like like he's actually uh, has these advantages? Is it just repetition? Is it mentality? What makes someone like GSP able to um, beat someone like yourself, who's literally? I mean, I think it's like fifteen, sixteen fights. You were on a crazy streak there. No, yeah, I, uh, like I said, timing, timing was everything because he wasn't like the world's best striker but he was able to use explosive techniques um, to hit you hard enough. And he had good enough wrestling, good explosive wrestling. So like he would, he would switch back and forth. And at the time there weren't very many people who could, who could do both, mm-hmm. you know, effective striker plus um, expect, expect uh, really good takedowns. So he would use the striking blended with the, the takedowns to be able to take people down. Yeah. Uh, I, when I fought him, I, I, I fought him a little bit after, you know, he had the fight with, um, we got knocked out. Yeah. He he got caught and then he, he won the next fight. And then I think I was fighting. So he had like one fight in between the knockout. So I was still thinking, Oh, his chin's gone. I just got to touch him. So I, I had the, I had a, the wrong game plan going into that fight too. I rather than you know set up the takedown clinch wear him down you know I I I deviated from the uh the original blueprint yeah and then a few fights later you find who at the time was one of my favorite fighters BJ Penn now to your point about breaking a guy that's a guy that I would have thought at the time okay John Fitch is gonna come here and break him because BJ has a history of just kind of he broke in the last round, but I don't know what I had to do for the ref to, <laughs> to step in. Like, I, I don't know how many times you got to hit somebody without them doing anything back before. Right. It, it's a weird fight. It goes to a draw, but that's when, like, if you just looked at it, you said, okay, John Fitch could come here and pose his will on BJPN. That's another legend. My, I guess my question is, you got to fight, I've mentioned, like, Paul Daly, who's a name inside of the sport, if you follow that. Um, you get to, and I think you fought Demi Mine as well, but you got to fight some of the the big names. Looking mm-hmm. back on your career, do you, find, do you take pride that you were able to go in there with those guys uh, and go the full distance with both of them? Or uh, they were, you know, um, the BJ fight is annoying because I wasn't in the, my head wasn't in the first round. So, you know, I kind of gave that away a little bit, but then, you know, I think I did enough for them to have stopped the fight in the third. And that was right in a position where I win that fight, like I'm fighting for the title next. Right back. You know, uh, but also like I, I, I made the mistake of trying to go vegan. <laughs> right. And that was before the BJ Penn fight. So I, I had lost probably eight pounds of, of lean muscle and uh i started having neck issues or like my thoracic spine started getting you know some uh, stenosis around my nerves and that ended up leading to like shoulder surgery after the bj pen fight so like you know the amount of muscle mass that i lost and then i had nine months off because i had shoulder surgery that i didn't really need <laughs> like i had pain in my shoulder and uh it was the 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 stenosis was causing the problem. It wasn't anything in the shoulder, but I still had to recover from the surgery, which took time off. And that, that set me up then to be not very physically healthy. And I needed money really bad because I hadn't fought in a while. And then I came back and that was the, uh, uh, the Johnny Hendricks fight. 
And if you like, if you look at pictures of me for that fight, like my body looked awful. Mm. Yeah. So but I mentioned earlier this long wing streak you were on, and you've had a couple of streaks throughout your career. Um, not not as long as that first one, which was like 15, 16, but you had several times where you won, you know, five, six fights in a row. Um, what, what's your mentality during that period that you're you're you were just cruising victory after victory after victory? How do you is, are you like on a supreme high, um, or are you nervous that oh my gosh, like I'm doing so good, I don't want to mess this up? No, I, I it's uh it's like pitching a hitter, I guess. I don't know. You just focus on improvement, constant improvement. You know, being in the gym and 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 doing the work to to get the next skill like dialed in, and you're so focused on getting those skills dialed in that you don't focus around a lot of the other stuff. When do you know that you've improved the skill? When you can start hitting it like regularly in practice, you, you got to like force yourself to like, to adapt certain things. And it's, it's hard because your training partners start to see what you're trying to trying to do and force. So they get better at defending it. And uh, it can it can mess you up because um, you get frustrated because you don't feel like you're improving, but you just gotta stay on it and get it until you've got the you've got it down. Or uh, you know, some things you gotta learn, uh, implement them, and then realize it's not part of your style or it just doesn't fit, or you found a problem with it, and then you have to adjust or throw it out. Looking back on your career, what is the one, your biggest maybe regret? And at the same time, what is the thing that you wish people would appreciate as much as you do that maybe doesn't get enough appreciation? Hmm. I don't know. I, I think uh, the, uh, the style, the technique uh, of a lot of the fighters, I think it's kind of lost today. Um, I wish there was more appreciation towards that so you could see. Cause like, I don't know, man, the, the fights, the old fights had a little more like, I don't know, texture to them because fighters had, uh, they were less, I don't know if it was uh, less concerned, but like a lot of people are, are so focused on just entertainment that you end up getting like the same fight over and over and over again, you know, where, when guys are, are focused on doing what they do best in order to to win or dominate another person, I feel like you get a lot cooler stuff. A lot of cooler fights come from that. Uh, but we've lost that a little bit because everybody's that entertainment mindset. Uh, I think people would enjoy and appreciate, you know, the uh, the different ways people come up with solving the problem of, you know, how do I beat this guy up? What's the one rule change, only one that you could implement that you would make for UFC right now or MMA in general? One rule change, I would I would say the uh, knees of the head on the ground. Why? Because it changes grappling. It changes. You know, if I if I um, if I get into half guard and I get into side control, if I get to certain positions on my back. Um, I can knee you in the head and that's a, you know, a fight ending uh, technique, something that changes the course of, of the fight quickly. You take a bad shot, you get stuck underneath somebody. If you're on your hands and knees, you can get kneed. It just changes so much of uh, te technique and the application of technique. If 
you were talking to young fighters. I know you work with them, uh, but for those that you don't work with, um, you said, hey, this is the biggest piece of advice I can give you if you want to be an MMA fighter. What would that be? In today's market, today's uh, situation is you got to market yourself. You have to be on the social media. It doesn't matter. It sucks. It doesn't even matter how good you are. If you have 2 million uh, YouTube subscribers, you're, you're getting big fights. You're going to get big fights. Okay. It's about notoriety. Fighting is about notoriety. And um, unfortunately, the, the market's kind of weird right now. Not everybody wants to see just the best guys. Sometimes people want to pay money to see a shit show. <laughs> and uh, yeah, notoriety is your, your superpower. Okay. I mean, there's a reason why Conor McGregor called yeah. himself notorious. Well, okay. Let's talk about that for half a second. Yeah, I think, you know, I was not a big... I mean, he, he gets it. He gets it. Right. I was not a big believer in the Conor hype. And then he beat Eddie Alvarez pretty easily. I'm like, oh, man, okay. I missed it. And then now I feel vindicated after all of his... Like, he's a... Uh, yeah, he he won the two big fights he needed to. Yep. We came back to fight Dustin. I'm like, there's no way he's going to beat Dustin Poirier. And people are like, oh, he's going to beat Dustin. I'm like, no, I don't think he's that good of a fighter, but he came through. I think the Jose Aldo fight was maybe one of the luckiest things that has ever happened to anybody. <laughs> it was the confluence of like the perfect storm. <laughs> like yep. you get him to run. That, that one punch you know? made him. That one punch really made him. Because if he, he would have got his hand, if he would have got his ass handed to him and leg kicked to death, Mm-hmm. that whole fight then you know people would have wrote him off he just would have been a, an irish sensation but like he did it yep that's okay. talk about your book for a second i got a copy of the weight cut bible hey i could use the cut weight but not in this way um but no i got it because i want to read it because i think again for folks if you've never been so someone like myself who's a high school athlete not a high level athlete like you someone like yourself is we we don't appreciate the dedication and the work and the repetitive nature of what uh, you guys do. And so a book like this, I wanted to get it to see because cutting weight, um, you know, I've managed some low-level fighters, regional fighters, and hearing them talk about it, it's it's tough. Some of, them are, some of them are good at it, some of them aren't. The ones that are are extremely disciplined, and they take it very seriously. Yep. Uh, so I wanted to read your take on this, and I found it unbelievable, the dedication that you put yourself through. And that's part of why you were a world-class fighter was because of right here. So for people in business – if you listen to this or in life, you say, hey, how do I get better? You pick up a book like this and you read it. You don't have to do the weight cutting stuff, but you take those same principles, which is, hey, I'm eating a piece of chicken at two o'clock on Tuesday. It's bland. I hate it. But guess what? It's what I have to do. do. I got to do. How do you how do you convey that mentality to people? Because so many people don't understand. It's what well, you, it, do. you do. You do the little hard stuff consistently. So that the big one at the end, you know, isn't, isn't overwhelming, doesn't kill you. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, if you don't do the two months of eating the right foods at the right times and doing the workouts, then when you get right up on fight time, now you've got an extra five pounds to lose. And, you know, that's extra water weight, going to be more dehydrated. Maybe you don't recover then and you're, you're fighting flat or you have kidney failure and you had to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's, there's bad things that happen if you're not responsible and on, on your tasks and getting things done. Okay. John, um, where do you want people to connect with you, to follow you? What all do you have going on? Um, where do we want to point people to? 
they can check out the social media stuff, right? Uh, go to johnfish.net is the easiest and you can find everything there. I've got newsletters and uh, online courses, things to check out. I'm working on a couple things right now because I did a seminar um, a couple weeks ago, uh, wrestling for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I'm doing a little bit of a, I'm going to do a free like self-defense, really basic self-defense stuff. Like what do you do if somebody grabs your wrist, somebody grabs your elbow, mm. somebody grabs you from behind. Um, I'm going to have that out in the next, you know, few weeks probably. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. And folks, seriously, get the book. Listen, I'm overweight. I didn't get the book to lose weight. I got the book to read about the mentality because cutting weight, if you've, I've, again, I've never done it. I've been around people who have done it on the lower level. Um, uh, it, it, let me just toot your horn here a little bit. Watching you, you talk about breaking people's will. Watching John Fitch was like watching, I don't know, a crocodile get a hold of a hippopotamus or something and just, <laughs> and just wrestle it down beneath the water. Like the way that you would just break people. Uh, it was unbelievable. You are one of the greatest welterweights of all time. And you don't get there by being just a freak athlete. You can be a freak athlete, but you have to do so much more every single day. And if you don't, you will set yourself up for failure. Uh, so a book like this is really cheap. Get on Amazon. Learn that mentality of how one of the greats has done it. Um, it's very, it's a short read. It's easy read. Um, and so I would highly recommend that. We'll be sure to pump your website and your social media. Thank you for your time. This has been fantastic and an honor. Um, and you are officially done, right? You're not coming back. I, I mean, I'm I'm walking at 225 right now. So if I come back, it's going to be a heavyweight. About bare knuckle boxing. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was thinking about doing some grappling. Grappling? Oh, like uh, underground? Yeah, submission underground or whatever. Uh, you know, we have uh, Yuri Simones and uh, just uh, Mason Fowler or local. Uh, a lot of times so there's there's some big guys to grapple with um but yeah but I, i've been dealing with i've been dealing with like uh, uh neck and thoracic spine garbage for a long like a decade so you know it depends on that you know I, my neck is sore right now and i haven't worked out all week because i i, I did an open mat on sunday <laughs> yeah you grappled, you, you, grappled 20 minutes and i've had to like take the whole week off to like try to recover Oh God! Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to watch you grapple some heavyweights because I'm sure that would be a, a interesting mixture of speed, power, and just pure technique. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking. Was like, you know, it'll be interesting to see if I can keep my speed. You know, if I can hit like two two thirty, two thirty five, but like, you know, I don't want to have the love handles, <laughs> but I can still be fast. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to like grapple and compete with some bigger guys. Oh. But I gotta, you know, I'm old man, and like you get sore from shit like you sleep wrong <laughs> like your ribs hurt it's like what happened all right well john we'll link to all your stuff thank you again for your time today listeners we'll be back soon with another episode